This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Tim O'Brien, whose latest novel is America Fantastica. This is, I guess, the 11th book, including Going After Cacciato, The Things They Carried, and most recently, Dad's Maybe Book in 2019, which I do want to ask you about. But first, we'll talk a little bit about America Fantastica, and then I want to go into your career, particularly your work as maybe one of America's leading writers about the Vietnam War. But let's talk about this one, which is the first, I guess, adult novel in 20 years. The action takes place in 2019-2020, and it involves a lot of liars. And it seemed to me, but something about Donald Trump and his lying must have started the thought process. Is that correct? In a way, it's correct. In a way, not. I had begun the book 21 years ago before I'd even heard of Donald Trump. I had two children at a late age, at age 56, and it was either be a good father or don't write, one of the two. And uh, you can't be a good dad if you're working 15 hours a day, and if on the off hours you're sitting at the dinner table thinking about your book and the characters and the story and all the frustrations that go with a novel. So I went cold turkey. I stopped writing for all that time. I had begun America Fantastica and done 18 or 25 pages, somewhere between there, and uh, liked the characters a lot, the main characters in the book, especially the female character, Angie Bing is her name. And for the next 15 years or so, Angie just kept talking to me, saying, put me in a book, put me, finish it, get off your butt, write the sentences. But I wanted to be faithful to this vow to be a good father and, and put it off. So when the kids got old enough, became uh, teenage years, I, it was time to write again, and I began America Fantastica. So Trump had nothing to do with the beginnings of the book, but not just Trump, but also the, all the conspiracy stuff all around me. I live in Texas, where it lives and breathes. Sandy Hook didn't happen. COVID was a hoax. Or, if COVID wasn't a hoax, it was transmitted to us by the Chinese as an unhoax, like a real thing, you know, one of the two. They couldn't make their minds up. The replacement theory, where people of color were replacing white people at the front of every line, the line into college, the line for employment, mass murders not happening, and all, of course, all the racial stuff on the conspiracy chat rooms and so on. So these two characters that I'd written about 20-some years earlier, collided with the America that I saw as I became a writer again, as I came out of the silence and uh, delivered the story to me. What was that original 25 pages? Did any of it survive in this book? Yes, the opening, oh, 12 pages of the novel. My main character, a J.C. Penny salesman, fed up with synthetics and rayon and sweaters, Goes to a Kiwanis Club meeting on a Saturday, crosses the street, goes into a bank and tells the teller, give me all your money and you'll need to take a ride with me, he says to this teller named Angie Bing, with whom he's been flirting for several years. And so begins a, a road trip. 
based a little bit on my reading of the Odyssey back when I was in college. I was fascinated by the kind of the episodic trip that Odysseus takes. But at that point, all you had was that intro and not much else. When you'd written your earlier novels, was that kind of the same process, just start writing and just throw it in the air and see what happens? Not quite that bad. One sentence leads to the next. I think any writer would tell you that. It's If you begin outlining for a novelist, it seems like a kind of death sentence to me, that I don't think I'd write a book that I knew what was going to happen chapter by chapter, page by page. I want to be as surprised as a, as a reader when I write. I wouldn't write if I wouldn't have a surprise happening pretty much with every paragraph or certainly with every page. I have to be surprised by something. The contradictions in characters are what fascinate me. The absence of uniformity in real life, I'm interested in people that mystify me, that I can't pin down. And contradiction for me within a character is necessary. And I saw those contradictions in both my main characters. One is a compulsive liar. He lies about everything. The bank robber guy. And was that always there? I mean, even before Donald Trump, this guy was a liar. Yeah, the elements of lying were there. It hadn't yet become a national disease. It's been transmitted. 70 million people, roughly, you know, voted for Trump and passing along his, you know, I won the election lie. Election he lost. Passing along all these weird conspiracy lies. Man never walked on the moon, so on. But the character of Boyd was, from the start, conceived of as a, as a compulsive liar. There's a psychological name for this disease, which is Pseudologica Fantastica. That's where I got the Fantastica part of America. It's a syndrome, a psychological syndrome that means compulsive lying. And that interested me in this character. What made him lie and why lie? And for a good many Americans, I think, reality is a kind of monster. Losing the election is monstrous. And so you replace it with fantasy, probably even in your own mind. Probably many people spout deceit, don't think they are, don't believe they are. And that fascinates me, how we can all fool ourselves. The whole idea of lying ultimately fascinated me the deeper I got into the book. There are times when, in my own life, where deceit is necessary. My wife shows me a dress she just bought. Am I going to say it looks awful on you? I don't. And a lot of married men don't. I get on an elevator and somebody says, how are you doing? And it might be the worst day of my life. And I'll say, great, how are you doing? To avoid, I don't know, embarrassment and embarrassing the recipient of whatever I have to say. What if I were to say, oh, it's awful. Let me stop the elevator and I'll tell you all about my day. Well, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. If someone says, how are you? And you take it seriously, you're screwed. You are. <laughs> the next hour or two are totally lost. So I want to bring this back in a way, this idea of lying, because the earliest lies, I mean, lies have always been there, obviously. The government has always lied. But the earliest lies that we as boomers had to deal with were the lies about Vietnam, which come right back to what got Tim O'Brien started as a writer. Can you bring that 
back into focus in terms of the new book. For sure. It's been a fascination ever since Vietnam. You suffer the consequences of deceit and lies. It's just an individual. It's not a so much a political issue. It is, for me at least, it's more of a personal sense of betrayal. Lies about body counts in Vietnam. Lies about how we were winning the war that plainly on the ground we were not winning. They were winning. The feel of walking through a village in Vietnam where every step might be your last. The place was just heavily mined, my area of operations. Landmines were what killed everybody. Not everybody, but 80%. And blew off legs and arms. And the thought that we were winning this war, the, the ground was winning the war, blowing us all up. The Sunday school stricture about don't lie. It's the consequences of it. So when lies are not only endangering human life, but endangering the constitutional democracy, as the January 6th did. Let's not even certify the guy who won the election. And it wasn't just Trump. You know, there was Ted Cruz standing in the Senate, Lindsey Graham defending this. There are a lot of people who are still senators who were arguing against the certification of the winner. And, of course, the whole mob outside. And then the mobs at Sioux City and, you know, Helena Montel across the country spouting the same thing. It's endangering the very foundations in which our country, you know, is built. That's when lies get dangerous, when they hurt others. So there are nice lies. Yeah, your dress looks great. And there are ugly lies, like we won an election that we lost. There's a very small series of segments which don't really connect to the rest of America Fantastica. Those involve two people who are spreading lies on the internet. Apparently, our hero Boyd once worked with them. And those particular lies, they're almost like the old weekly world news kind of lies from supermarket tabloids of the 50s and 60s, so outrageous that nobody should ever believe <laughs> them, right? And you made some of them up, but some of them are real. Are real, yeah. <laughs> I tried to do a mixture. My main character, Boyd, the compulsive liar, the bank robber, was once, as you said, writing this stuff and publishing it on the internet and in chat rooms. So I would take real lies. For example, reptiles man the phone banks at the IRS. The real lie. I didn't make that one up. That's off a chat room. How'd you find that one? Just went looking. All you've got to do is log on and you'll find them. <laughs> Lots of rabbit holes. And then you'll find you make up an equally preposterous lie that's no more preposterous than the real lie. So part of the fun of writing the book, it's a, it's a satire. I mean, right. obviously, it's, and I think a funny satire. Not entirely, but largely. And that was some of the fun I had of sort of becoming these uh, conspiracy theorists, these uh, professional liars. In a way, I already was one because I'm a fiction writer. I make stuff up and then want you to believe it as you're reading. I don't want my readers to think that didn't happen. That didn't happen, like with every page. I want the reader to surrender to the make-believe. But uh, the fun of writing the book was to become the people I was essentially satirizing. When you talk about fiction being a lie, there are also those who would say that somewhere inside fiction, there's also more truth 
than there is in nonfiction, which is kind of an oxymoronic sort of thing. It is, and I've said that. In The Things They Carried, which is probably my most well-known book, uh, I write about the difference between story truth and happening truth. And there are differences. The truths you get out of a story may not literally have occurred, that event and that dialogue, but they're emblematic of deeper and, we hope, more universal truths. So we all kind of do that in a way. You go fishing, you pull in a fish. It felt like you were pulling in a you know a hundred pounder. It was like you know eight ounces or five pounds or. But to describe it, you want the reader to feel what you felt hauling that fish in and the battle you went on. So you sort of exaggerate the weight of the fish. But that's kind of what a fiction writer does. You you care about a kind of feeling or emotional truth, the fear of combat the joys of being alive after combat. What a relief. Click, I'm alive. And then the day goes on and another firefight breaks out. And to write about that sense of surprise, joy that you're still among the living, it's not traditionally written about in most war stories and so on. And I wanted to transmit through fiction that feel of relief at still breathing and your legs are still working and you can still see and hear and uh, and how sparkling and alive the world feels after the horror of almost dying time after time there's an aliveness to the grass and to the trees and to the sky and it's not a pretty truth because people have died and you're so happy to be alive. But there's, so there's a mixture of incredible sorrow at your dead friends or those who've lost legs and arms, mixed with your own delight at still being alive. What was the feeling in the morning, going out knowing you may not make it back? It was a feeling of surrender, the best I can describe it. You saddle up, you put on your rucksack, and you grab your weapon and grenades and everything and your legs move you don't want them to move you don't all you what you all you really want is just to fall on the ground and never move again but there's a surrendering thing to fear i think for my part fear of humiliation and fear of embarrassment i can't just drop in front of my comrades and so my legs moved even though my brain wanted to not move it's a kind of default, a sensation I'm defaulting to what is ugly, what I don't want to do. I don't want to kill people. Even if it were a right war, I wouldn't want to kill people. And that was not a right war, in my opinion. But even if it were, Vonnegut fought in a right war, World War II, or a war that's called right, and he didn't like it any. Meanness and slaughter and nastiness, men killing one another. He didn't care for it any more than I did, and throughout the rest of his life didn't care for it. But somehow we both surrendered to it. He might have had different reasons than I did. I never asked him. My reasons were really a sense of, I don't want to be embarrassed. I'd rather die, literally, than die of embarrassment. I found some quotes that you, Tim O'Brien, made. I know I was violent, that I shot at people, but today it just doesn't feel real. Is that 
pretty much it. Yeah. It felt like a daydream, but you're lost in a way. In a memory of a father, you're daydreaming about somebody who's been dead for 20 years, or you're, you know, your sandbox in your backyard. But you leave the present, and you're somewhere else, sometimes into the future, sometimes backward. And that's what Vietnam felt like. And that's something, that theme is carried out into America Fantastica, I think, maybe even more so in my new book, that reality for a liar grows out of uh, horrors of reality around you. And we replace reality, therefore, with our fantasies. So my main character, just as an example, Boyd grew up on the wrong side of some fast tracks in Santa Monica. He was a paper boy to the stars, to Rosemary Clooney and, you know, Robert Stack and all those kind of aging actors. But his home life was a nightmare. A father who didn't love him and didn't pretend to love him. A mother who was grossly overweight, so much so that the house smelled fat and Boyd hated going to his own house as a 12-year-old. And so he began making up an alternative life for himself. And the lies continued throughout his life as he grew up. He'd lie in the end about everything. His age, his height, his weight, educational background. He went to Groton, he'd tell people, or Exeter. He didn't go to you know, some you know small public school in L.A. And he ended up becoming a journalist and a pretty well-known one who was finally outed. He'd made up his entire resume to get the job. Yeah, that's that's excessive and bad, all the stuff he did, and he kind of deserved his fate. His wife ended up divorcing him because he'd been lying to her about his whole life, too. And that's how he ended up in a J.C. Penney store just for 10 years or so. I remember right, I worked at the Washington Post for a few years as a reporter, and not long after I'd left, the Janet Cook story came out about she'd made up her own story about a small elementary school student or maybe early middle school student who was, you know, a drug addict and living on the streets. Totally invented. One of the coolest surprise. So her fall, her disgrace, her shame from this lying thing she'd done, I'm sure it just killed her. I'm sure she just regrets it and will never work in journalism again. And that's what's happened to my main character. So it's not so outlandish and unreal. It's a uh, it's happened before. The other characters in the book, they all lie. Angie lies. Mm-hmm. Randy Zapp, who is kind of this idiot lowlife, he lies. Douglas and Lois, the owners of the bank, they lie. Any, who is a young woman living in Minnesota, lies to everyone. There are so many liars in the book. Evelyn, I guess the ex-wife, doesn't lie that much. She's, But she has an affair that she's lying about, so she's lying too. When everybody is lying, how does a writer like Tim O'Brien keep track of what the truth of the novel is? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm the god that observes these liars, you know, condemning them to hell as they do it, but also laughing. This book was written... Bear in mind, as you're staring at CNN and the Fox Channel and NBC News and all the deceit coming out of that day after day after day, it felt much like my book. I was wallowing and actually yapping back at this sea of liars coming at me. I would talk to my TV set. That's not true. That's not true. 
or that's exaggerated, or that fact is wrong. You did not speak to the biggest crowd in American history. You're ignoring 53 Super Bowls with bigger crowds. In fact, you're ignoring the crowds of your predecessor, Obama. I talked to the TV. Just as through the characters I'm talking as an author, kind of through my characters, partly condemning them, but partly laughing at them. One of the issues that I've learned in the last five years is that reason and civility are, at least in the political arena, dead. It doesn't exist anymore. You can't argue people out of their ridiculous, preposterous theories about Sandy Hook never happened. You can't win the argument. So I decided to do satire and laugh at them. That's kind of my form, I guess, of revenge. Mark Twain, in his later years, got pretty bitter about hypocrisy and overblown piety in America. And he wrote with a certain anger that I feel, but also with great humor. I mean, you can't help but laugh. And the same with Jonathan Swift, just a wonderful satirist that I'd read in college. Swift's proposal to solve the problem of famine in Ireland was to eat our own children. Imagine the protein, and you know, it's not packaged protein, it's real fresh stuff, a pack full of vitamins. What he was doing was satirizing equally preposterous, or almost equally preposterous, arguments to solve the problem of famine that were going on in Parliament. I mean, just like shipping people away and so on. So humor is one way of responding to the twin contagions of compulsive lying going on and COVID intersecting with it, the revolution of solitariness and masks and fear of other human beings, staying away from them. I'm 77. I didn't go out of my house. Well, I went out of my house, but I didn't go off my property except twice during that main year of COVID. I went to a uh, Walmart to pick up groceries two different times, but I was in a van and all I did was open up the back of the van and they'd put the groceries in. So I was solitary. My children didn't go to school. They studied on Zoom. And a lot of America was that way. Businesses closed. Bookstores suffered. All kinds of business. And so these twin things going on as I'm watching it on television as casualties multiply. I think a million Americans died of COVID. Well, other people are claiming it's a hoax, as a million people are dead. And that's a, a hoax? If it's so, it's the biggest hoax in world history. So yeah, the book is a response to it all, but a response through uh, exaggeration and humor. Those sections in the book talking about lying as a contagion, as a pandemic, were those first written before COVID then? They were written during COVID, during roughly 2017 up okay. till 10 months ago. Well, the reason I ask that is because the metaphor of contagion, the metaphor of this pandemic of lying, kind of predates COVID itself. Uh, Charlie Pierce, who writes for Esquire, talked about the monkey prion invading the brains of Republicans going back to Reagan. So this is not no. that new as a pandemic. I'll say my first line of the book is, is the contagion was as old as Africa. 
as old as Babylon. It's old, the lying thing. COVID is a new kind of contagion, but epidemics and pandemics are not new history. Neither are new. The coincidence of the two, the collision of the two, is kind of new. We went through two catastrophes, traumas, psychological and otherwise, simultaneously. That was new. Uh, I can't find in history an example where they just collided the way they did. For me, neither is, is a metaphor. They're both real. I think lying is a contagious thing. It's spread from person to person. You hear the story, man never walked on the moon, and you sort of swallow it, and you tell your neighbor or your children or your wife. And it did spread across the country in great, great numbers, in millions. Preposterous things being believed, including that in the end, COVID was a hoax. That's just one of them plenty of other ones. Tim O'Brien, getting back to the lying and the war, were you aware of the lies of Vietnam before you went over, or were those first days in country where you saw the difference between what you'd been told and what you were looking at through your eyes, was that the revelation? I was suspicious of body counts. Are we really going out and counting bodies? Well, the answer was no when I got there, but I was suspicious. After a firefight, you don't count. You leave. Dead or out there, you're not doing counts. And the numbers didn't seem to belie the pressures of the war itself. It felt as if the things were getting worse and worse. We were sending more and more troops there. It ended up, when I was there, with half a million American soldiers. So how could we have been winning the war with our 16,000 advisors early on when we end up having to keep sending more and more men, more and more lives, more and more material, you know, weapons and ammunition and so on? But it was not till I got there that my suspicions began to be validated by what I was watching happening all around me. I was an infantryman, and our typical day would be wake up around four in the morning, just as light starting to dawn, saddle up and move through Quang Nai province in Vietnam, which is where the My Lai massacre had occurred a year before I got there. And you'd go into a village, you'd search it. Sometimes you'd find something, most often you wouldn't. Every third, fourth time, something horrible would happen, a landmine, or somebody would be shot dead or wounded badly, and you'd leave it. And then two weeks later, you'd come back to the same village, and the same thing would happen. And then a month later, back to the same village. It wasn't like World War II, where you were gaining ground, moving toward Berlin and across France. Ground was not being won and held. It was being seated as soon as you had casualties, you just leave and then come back later. So there wasn't a sense of destination. We're heading for Tokyo or we're heading for Berlin. There was a sense of going in circles. So is that winning? It sure didn't feel that way. It felt like in the end, like death for no purpose. On top of that, the political and moral ambiguities of Vietnam. Is it a war of hegemony? Is it a war of to stop communist aggression is an economic war, all these arguments going on in the states. The only certainty really was the orphans and the widows and the dead people. That They were for sure. So it had seemed to me 
before the war, after the war, and even now in my old age, that certain blood was being shed for uncertain reasons. If you're going to kill people, you should be pretty certain that it's the right thing to do. There's no such thing as absolute certainty, I don't think, but pretty certain, and it wasn't there. America was divided. Hawks at the throats of doves. Congress was divided. The American people were divided. It was a time of hard hacks versus hippies. If you remember that turbulent period. Cops in Chicago beating on the heads of protesters, like beating on the heads of your children, and I mean beating on their heads. Certainty was not there in our country. There wasn't consensus that this war is the right thing to be doing. I feel that now, too, that there's a big divide in our country over what to do about Ukraine and what to do about what's happening in Gaza. And it's not a division of rationality. It's, it's more an emotional kind of division, so it seems to me. Tim O'Brien, what were your feelings then about the invasion of Iraq and the lie there? I thought we went to war for a reason that didn't exist. We went to war because we were afraid of chemical weapons and nuclear weapons and that Hussein would use them. And the fire of fears were fanned day after day in the rhetoric of the administration. As you were reading this, this fanning of the flames, was a part of you thinking, oh my God, we're back in square one, we're back in Vietnam again? Yeah, or we were back in the Trojan Wars, or we were back in the Civil War. Wars don't just happen by nature, doesn't deliver them to us. Mankind makes war. Nature doesn't do it. So mankind is making, through its rhetoric and through the rhetoric of fear, now sometimes fears are totally justified. That's the conundrum. It's not easy sort of thing. When Pearl Harbor was attacked, Seattle would be attacked, or Alaska, and there certainly was evidence for it, with you know the Arizona and Oklahoma going down. So it's, I'm not making a peace pitch here. I'm making a fear pitch, saying that I think that wars grow out of fear, and they can be all kinds, economic fear, just actual fear of violence, all kinds of fears bring us to the point where we feel we should start killing. The basic theory behind Vietnam was containment of communism. We were afraid of communism spreading all throughout Southeast Asia. I think fear is a very primitive, powerful force inside of us. I went to war out of fear. Fear of humiliation. Fear that my mom and dad in my small town in Minnesota would hear some farmer in a cafe saying, did you hear what the O'Brien kid did? The sissy went to Canada. Well... I'd imagine my mom's eyes and my dad's eyes colliding, and I'd have this fear of what would happen to them, how they'd tear up or feel shamed, enough to send me to the war. I just couldn't endure the thought of being humiliated in my little Minnesota town. It was a fear, and that's just on a very low personal level. I think it grows to a national level, too. Colbert talks about truthiness. The thing that isn't true, but it has kind of a true flavor to it, as if it could be true. And you said before we went on the air that in some respects, that's exactly what your book is about. 
It is. It's a subject that has been on my mind now since somewhere in my adolescence. Things can sound true and not be true. Back in the old days, say, uh, 1310, it was truthy to say the Earth is flat because it seems so. The horizon was out there and the world looked flat, and it was thought back then, you sail far enough, you're going to fall off the Earth. And the evidence of the senses suggested it because you would look at a horizon which seemed to end. The same principle, I think, applies to the, even the word truth. Truth does not float around out there and declare itself. That lamp does not say, I am a lamp and I'm now emitting light. Man says that about the lamp. The sun does not declare to us, I am at the center of your solar system. We declare it. Once we didn't declare that. Man once declared the earth is at the center of the universe. So truth does not declare itself. We declare things about the world that we live in based on what we know about the world. But knowledge expands. Galileo and Copernicus came along and Tycho Brahe. Columbus came around and he didn't. He sailed back from the flat earth. Einstein came along, and we learned that the laws of Newton were not inviolate. Expands, and the same principle applies to me as a human being and you. We, we change, and the truths about ourselves mutate. You, as you told me during our break, were once a smoker. Declared that of yourself, and now you've declared, I'm not a smoker. The truth changes. Even at the same moment, what is true in this room right now as we're talking is not true in Tokyo, because one of the truths you could declare about now is the time, which is it's now, what, let's just, I don't know what time it is, but for, let's say, yeah. 5 p.m. And it won't be true when this airs. And, right, and it won't be true in four seconds from now. It will be four seconds after five. Truth is fluid, and not only fluid, it's suspect even when you make a declaration about things. I've come in my old age to like the word maybe, or I'm not sure, or I don't know about some of the great truths like, is there life after death? I am suspicious of, and maybe even slightly bitter about those who declare absolutely to others. Yeah, there is. All you've got to do is be a good boy and you're going to end up in heaven and they're going to be pearly gates and they're going to, St. Peter will be waiting for you and made up truths. I'm suspicious of them. And it seems to me that we should be careful of absolutism, whatever its form, when we make declarations about what is true and what is not true. Because it seems that life should have taught all of us that, uh, what was true once may not be true later on. I thought I was a nice, polite, decent, civilized guy until I ended up in Vietnam. And I learned that there was a part of me that was none of those things. When you're talking about that, I'm thinking back to your novel, Going After Cacciato, in which people have declared afterward, did Cacciato even exist? Well, I think he existed. The way Huckleberry Finn exists, or the way Mersol exists in The Stranger, or 
the way Madame Bovary exists as a fictional character, I think Cacciato existed as a fictional character. But curiously, some people say, well, maybe he was an invention of Berlin. Yeah, they do. That's the thing about writing stories. In the end, the writer cannot comment on his own work. That's a death sentence to a writer. If you write commentary, polemics, and here's what my story is about, that kind of stuff. That's either mediocre or bad writing. The door has to be open for the reader in the end to make the story his or her own as you lay in bed at two in the morning and you're in the story and you ask the question, does Cacciato exist? That should be left to the reader. He certainly, I kept him mysterious. I didn't give him any dialogue at all until the middle of the book and then once at the very end. He says the word I at the end because I wanted him to be always over the horizon, moving toward peace, walking away from a war, tantalizing just over the horizon, something you're going after, following this character who's walked away from a war, and going after him in the literal sense of chasing him, but also in the metaphorical sense of following him, going after this guy who has walked away from a war. It's born out of the real world. We'd sit around and in Vietnam, especially around this dusk was coming on and it got really black and dangerous. And you'd look out at the mountains, we'd make jokes about it, saying, oh, God, we could all just start walking tonight and just head to those mountains and just, you know, go through Laos and into India and Burma, Burma and then, and, uh, you know, come go take a ship across the Mediterranean and end up in Paris. We'd talk about it. It would be no more dangerous than what we're doing right now. <laughs> we've got weapons in case it does get dangerous. We've got sea rations and we've got weapons to get more food. And that idea of imagined flight has found its way into almost every great book about war. I mean, The Red Badge of Courage, Henry Fleming running from battle, and, and uh, Achilles laying down arms, mostly out of anger on his part. Or rowing for Sweden in Catch-22 after the retreat from Caporetto and Hemingway, you know, fleeing from war. Because it's flight from death, it's flight from extinction, it's flight from evil, it's flight from killing people. It's a f And there's an instinct to flee that I think even animals feel. You know, a deer will bolt. Maybe not all of them, but I don't think rattlesnakes will necessarily bolt. Well, yeah, I guess even they will if you don't <laughs> tag it. So Cacciato's representative of that, walking away from evil. I was thinking of him in the book more as staying away a little bit from the idea of absolute truth. I mean, there's so many ways to read a book. If I talk to people about almost any book, I'm going to learn something about somebody else's what they take from the book. Because you take from a book in part what you bring to it, background, temperament, attitudes toward violence. What is love? Is love eternal? And if so, why so many divorces for people who were in love at one point? And you bring your life and your beliefs about the world around you into a book, and they meet up, they conjoin, and each reader is going to take something from the book and have an attitude toward the book that's going to vary, sometimes radically and other times um, just on the margins, but nonetheless vary. 
Plus, even I, when I read books, have different attitudes toward books I read 20 years ago than I have when I reread them. Sure. I didn't much like Lolita when I first read it. Now I adore it. I didn't much like Nabokov's writing, period. And now I think he's a genius. That changes over time. I don't know if it changes for the worse or the better, but it does change. When I was 16 years old, I watched Fellini's La Dolce Vita and fell asleep. It was the worst movie I'd ever seen. And then I was doing an interview with the curator from Pacific Film Archive about a retrospective of Fellini. And I watched La Dolce Vita and suddenly it was my favorite movie. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Tim O'Brien, I want to ask you about your career, but one quick question. Have you been back to Vietnam? I have. And I went back in 1994. And what was that like? I didn't want to go. The New York Times asked me to go, the magazine. And uh, I pressed back against it. It wasn't for psychological reasons. It was, I, I'm a smoker. I don't want to sit on an airplane for, you know, 20 hours and spend time in an airplane that long. Um, I, I get cramped and restless and I can't stand it. But I finally said, okay. I went and I'm so glad I did. Uh, Vietnam, until I went back, had been, the word Vietnam meant war. All it really meant to me, and the memories were all of war. And they were almost entirely bad memories. There were some happy ones, um, fraternity, and people I learned to really respect and like, but mostly just horror. And to go back there and see this peaceful people in a, a place, a physical place at peace, I visited a rice paddy where 20 years earlier, that rice paddy had been bubbling with machine gun fire, just literally bubbling with it, and uh, with no place to take cover. It's flat, and there's rice and water, and that's it. Then to see it 20 years later at peace with that kind of yellow rice sort of bending with the breeze and the beauty of it against the mountains in the distance and uh, no war going on, Something happened inside me where Vietnam became a different Vietnam. It didn't erase the old bad stuff. That's going to be there forever. But now alongside it is this uh, peaceful, naturally beautiful, just the word peace is all I can think of. It was at peace. And it, it moved me just so deeply. How, also how forgiving the Vietnamese were. I'm not sure that in uh, like Dubuque, Iowa, if... Al-Qaeda were to march there, there and, you know, wreck the land and kill people, <laughs> whether they, whether people in Dubuque would be forgiving or not. The Vietnamese certainly seemed that way to me. And most Americans who revisit Vietnam, especially soldiers, say the same thing. They, they can't believe how much Americans are welcomed. It's, it's shocking and wonderful. Well, that's how I found Cambodia and Laos, where I've been how welcoming both were to America with the realization of the damage that they did. Tim O'Brien, you have said that you always expected and wanted to be a writer, and your dad did as well and was kind of jealous of you. Well, that's what my sister and brother told me, mostly my sister, that he'd always wanted to be a writer, I think. It was an off-and-on wanting. He was in World War II in the Navy in the Pacific where bad stuff happened. He was a border destroyer. But his writing back home, he was little pieces were published in uh, a naval in Norfolk, a, a newspaper. 
they were like sort of Gene Kelly goes to war, kind of happy take on a war, on the town take, uh, chipper and uh, full of humor and not ever talking about the grisly stuff. And he wrote them well. They were fun to read and funny to read and uh, anecdotally well-told stories. He had the, the makings of, uh, by sentence by sentence of, you know, the lot better writer than most of the students' writing I read these days. But he lacked any sense of discipline, any devotion, I think even any ambition to actually do it, just more the ambition to dream about it. He never told me that he liked my books or even that I can remember that he'd even read them. I'm not sure. My sister claims that my mom and dad had read my books, but I didn't get any evidence of it. But you always expected to be a writer yourself. I kind of dreamed of it as my dad did, but it seems like being a writer was something people from New York City did and from L.A. and not from Worthington, Minnesota. I know it was ridiculous because lots of good writers have come from small towns like that, but at the time... It felt like a fanciful thing that could never happen. And I didn't pursue writing in college or even in graduate school as a career. I wrote, as soon as I got back from Vietnam, I wrote what became my first book. But it was written really for myself as a kind of reminder and, and a thing to do to get away from academia at, in graduate school for a couple of hours. Around two in the morning, I'd quit studying and write for an hour or two and then go to bed. And that's uh, If I Die in a com Combat Zone. Box me up and ship me home. Yeah. <laughs> it's, an old, it's an old war ditty in basic training. So you wrote it for yourself, but you sent it out anyway. I did. I did it on a dare from a friend at Harvard who was uh, physics. And he read it and said, it's good. Why don't you send it out? And I said, are you kidding? He said, yeah, come on, do it. So I did do it. And I sent it to, uh, I think, two publishers that I can remember. Maybe not. Maybe it was only one. So it was taken right away um, by a guy named Seymour Lawrence, who had an imprint with Delacorte Press, later with Houghton Mifflin. I didn't really know who he was. He called me up on a hallway telephone in my dorm at Harvard, and when he first said who he was, I couldn't remember the name of the guy I'd sent the book to. And I sort of figured out from what he was saying, oh, he must have been the guy. And he said, let's have lunch and so on, and, and uh, took it. And it wasn't until then that I even thought, well, it's possible that, you know, someday I could be a novelist. It took Cacciato. When I wrote that, I knew I was a writer. I mean, that, that's, that's my first really, really, really good book. And I hadn't written a really, really, really good book until that one. It was that book that made me decide that I'm going to, the rest of my life, be a writer. And then after that came The Things They Carry. Yes. I was looking at IMDb and saw that there was a film of In the Lake of the Woods, but I never heard of it. The film or the book? The film I never heard of. Oh, the film. No. The book is fantastic. Well, who has? I barely heard of it. And I'm... <laughs> But the lead actor called me up. I didn't know they were, I knew I'd sold the rights. I thought I'd sold them for like a regular movie, but it was a TV movie they ended up making. You don't have to watch it, but the book, I think it's as good as anything I've ever written. I really, really like the book. 
And that's not true of other books. I don't say that about my other books. The ones I like, I say it. I stay quiet about the ones I'm not as happy with. And the book did really well. I mean, it still sells well and is taught in colleges. Not like the things they carried, but it still has a life. When a book is still being read, I think that's kind of the most an author can really hope for. If you're a serious writer and care about art and sentences and story and so on, is that some kid goes into a library and pulls a book off a shelf and starts reading and checks it out and reads it. It could be one out of a thousand. But that's what the writer wants, the same way I'm sure a painter would want somebody to wander into an obscure museum and see a painting and be surprised at it and uh, like it. So it's not the, the goal for, I've never had a goal of like bestsellerdom or meat or money or movies. It's just the idea of thousand years from now, a book may be pulled out and attract the attention and entertain a, 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 a maybe move the heart of a reader and then put it back on the shelf and wait another thousand years and have somebody else check it out. There's a certain joy in that that I think in the end is what the writer really on the deathbed takes pleasure in. And after all those years, you wound up writing Dad's Maybe book and then decided it's time to get back into adult novels. Yeah, Dad's Maybe book is an adult book, but it's nonfiction. It's the story of those intervening years I mentioned at the start of our interview when I had children in late age and about things I talk to my kids about, which are kind of the things you and I have been talking about. What is truth and what is absolutism? When is it okay to lie? When is it not? Is lying ever okay? Is, do you ever know what the truth is? Things I would talk to my kids about after school or at the dinner table and the things they would say back to me in response to this sort of thing. So it's about the life of a ex-writer, now a father, who's going to later become a writer again. <laughs> and uh, those intervening years, which were among the best years of my life. Do you kind of regret at times not having been writing those years? or No, not for a second. There's no regret. There's relief. It was a vacation from frustration. Making sentences is frustrating. If you're trying to make one that's unique and nothing flashy, but a fresh, original sentence, and then to do, you know, thousands of them in a novel is extremely frustrating and hard, laborious, day after day work. Put in six hours, and you know, if I get a paragraph, I'm really lucky. I mean, that's a great day. So it was a vacation from... Uh, from the, all those frustrations, returning to it was therefore a kind of joy where I recaptured that feeling when I was not a writer and writing my first book and writing America Fantastica, partly because I think it's funny and entertaining, was fun for me in a way that writing had not been fun before. And without the vacation for, you know, 15, 18, 20 years, I don't think it would have been fun. One thing I noticed... And I didn't really get the sense until toward the end of the book because, okay, you've got half a dozen characters each going off on their own little trip, connecting up, 
Each of them is on their own road trip, whether they're going anywhere or not. But there were a couple of places where you just kind of dig in on corporate lies at one point, bank lies at another point. And then toward the end of the book, because there are these sections where you talk about the spread of the lies. Mm -hmm. And so there are these sections, short sections, about the lies spreading. Mm -hmm. It occurred to me, Tim O'Brien, while having fun in the rest of the book, is pretty angry about what's happening in America. And it came out that anger, even in the jokes, came through. Yeah, that's what I meant when I was talking about Mark Twain. In his old age, he hated hypocrisy and piety. He was still incredibly entertaining and still funny. It's not political, though, for me. It's what's political about being angry about lying on a public stage and in public places about important things. There's nothing political about it. There's nothing Republican or Democrat about it. It's a kind of subject matter for, if you can't reason with them, laugh at them. I don't think I did a commentary. I, it was all done through story. People making up lies and talking about them, and there's truth seeds I wrote about. And it was all across America. What really get angry about was personal stuff. For example, every time I called up a, like AT&T or Amazon or online banking, I'd get the same phone message from all of them. Our lines are unusually busy. Please enjoy the next 40 minutes of flute music over and over. Well, their lines weren't unusually busy. They were always busy. <laughs> always. And it was recorded. I mean, if they were unusually busy, you wouldn't have a recording saying they're unusually busy. It was a lie. And it's a lie that all of America now has kind of learned to accept, sort of. I think we all hate it. Things like that, that's not political. That's sort of the infection of we'll go to how we'll tolerate deceit, even knowing it's deceit, and learn to live with it somehow. And again, it's I don't think it's like we were saying earlier, I don't think it's brand new. I think it's you know, old as Africa. Chipmunks don't lie. They chase acorns and then they die. Human beings are capable of knowing the difference between what they think is true, may change, probably does change and what they think is false, which also may change. Ducks don't lie, and cows don't lie, but we do. And we've, in some ways, we get inured to it, but except when it happens in a way that's personal and kind of hurts, and that hurts me to get these. So whether they come out of the TV set or out of my telephone when I try to call these places, I, I take it personally. I mean, I, I mean, I get it often enough, and I think most of Americans do. On the political end of it, I would say Republicans mind more than Democrats. I would, too, these days. Tim O'Brien, one final question. You're back to writing. Are you working on another novel? No, I'm not, and I hadn't promised I would not write another novel, but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to. On the other hand, my wife came home from meeting a friend of hers for lunch, and the, the friend said to my wife, God, my mother just went through the weirdest thing. She's 90 years old, or, and I was taking a shower and came out of the shower yesterday, and there was a man lying in her bed, a total stranger. The 90-year-old was totally naked, and 
put on a, a robe and called 911, saying there's a, there's a man in my bed. And as soon as I heard the story, just that much of the story, it felt like, wow, that would be an interesting opening to a novel. You'd have to make all kinds of decisions. Did the character know the man? Was it like an ex-lover from 50, 60 years ago? Did not know the person, but got to know him? There are all kinds of forks in the road you could take with an opening like that, where life sometimes delivers body blows to us, surprises to us. The novels I write and the novels that I admire in the rest of the world are those that begin with a kind of body blow. Like Huck Finn begins with the body blow of leaving Hannibal, like walking away from something, the Aunt Polly's of this world and the conventional Hannibal's of this world, and setting out alone as a 12-year-old. Part of me wants to steal that opening to the real story. Will I do it? I kind of doubt it. I've got bad carpal tunnel. I'm old. I don't like frustration. And I want to spend as much time with my kids as I can. So the odds are I'm done. You've been listening to an interview with Tim O'Brien, whose latest novel, perhaps his last novel, is America Fantastica. Special thanks to Elaine Petricelli and the folks at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera, California, where this interview was originally recorded. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 